0: Hi, my name is Francis Pinder, and you are watching or listening to the Salesforce Posse Podcast, where I speak to Salesforce industry influencers so we can gain a better understanding on how to excel in a career path from a Salesforce admin or developer to an architect. And in this conversation, I'm going to be talking with Johann Thurman from Berlin. Now what I love about his Salesforce story is he started as an accidental Salesforce admin and is now a Salesforce certified technical architect and has only really relatively recently started learning to code on the platform in depth so he is living proof that you don't have to be a really incredible coder on the platform to become a certified architect. He works with clients across the world to help support and architect their Salesforce implementations following Salesforce industry standards and best practices. And he also builds apps on the Salesforce platform to help Salesforce admins at adminshelper.com. Now we recorded this podcast earlier in the year but due to a couple of recording mishaps it's taken a while for us to get the audio all sorted out. But Johan is one of a growing number of people that are freelancing and really carving out a niche for themselves and working with clients across the globe. Now we talked about if admins are architects developing on the sales of a Platform and how he sees his role as an architect. Anyway, I'll shut up now and let's start the conversation with Johan. Tell a bit about yourself and how you got into Salesforce, just and then we'll kind of discuss about we've been chatting about development and um, Matt uh, Gary's videos that are quite cool.
1: So, yeah, uh, so I. I started Salesforce as everybody else. Um, one day a sales guy told me, Hey, we got Salesforce. Please make, please, um, I want to ha- use prospects instead of leads. So I learned how to rename tabs. Oh, yeah. I just re- <laughs> so so I an read. So accidental admin ish. 100%, really. 100%. 100%. Yeah, 100% right. No, I, I was a product manager before for normal oh. SIS software. Yeah. And uh, discovering Salesforce was amazing because I could do it myself suddenly. Instead of always Mm. have to write tickets, you know, I could see the speed, like as a product manager with normal SIS software, it took weeks to develop something small, like rename a tab.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: While in sales. So, um, and the sales guy actually was super impressed by my, oh, I renamed the lead tab to prospect. Because he thought I, you know, I implemented the prospects feature. No, I just renamed these. Um, and so somebody gave me a chance and said, you have no idea about Salesforce. A week later, I actually applied for a Salesforce job. I was immediately hooked. Right, yeah. I quit that job and- It was a bit like me actually. Cause, um, and some, yeah, because
0: I, I, I kind of was in a company looking, they wanted to get a CRM in. I evaluated a couple of different ones. One of them Salesforce. But the moment I saw it, I was like, yeah, this is the future. This is so easy to change and configure. And I was, I was straight hooked immediately, really. To this
1: day, a formula field is magic to me. (laughs) You know, we always forget how magic a formula field or a report is.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And just that you create a field, it's accessible over APIs. You can report on it. You've got security based around it.
1: You know, there's so much stuff uh, that can support, you know, that single data element to this day when i do demos salesforce has a million features now but when i self demo salesforce to a cto somebody like that a technical person i always demo the same i create a field i add it to a report yeah (laughs) because this blows a cto away (laughs) absolutely because you know i say i do it live in the demo in five minutes and he's like are you serious and then i actually like you say i go into workbench and say oh yeah by the way it's available at the api level as well yeah and Done. I'm sold. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and we don't have to talk about AI or no, whatever. Exactly.
0: Yeah, it's that end to end. My demo is I basically create an invoice app in five minutes, and literally it is create the object, create you know the invoice line object, create a couple of fields, show an automation, you know, um, approval process, and a report, and um, bingo, and it's like all in five minutes, whizzed through, uh, and the speed, and showing the speed, and yeah, how it's just very easy to develop it. in.
1: Built-in access control. Every yeah. CTO is always scared about risk. And I yeah. said, hey, we have built-in access control with profiles. I don't get into permissions or whatever. No, no, yeah, exactly, There's yeah. Super reporting, all this kind of magic, or even like the circle back, we talked about development. Is um, I'm not a coder at, by trade, not by any means. I mean, I, I think I write wrote a few thousand lines of production code in my life. <laughs> they um, like me, really. I went from... At, <laughs> Yeah, from admin to architect, I'm still an admin by heart. I still like to clean up page layouts. <laughs> I always have one, one or two clients um, where I'm an admin because I just enjoy nothing more than defining lead uh, statuses <laughs> <laughs> get a, no, it's you know, it's it's very and then I add a Mailchimp integration and uh, build a customer. I don't know 4K and the customer is super happy. The speed, the, the speed of doing stuff um, with yeah. built-in security, this is still the magic. And so so long story short, um, with a few in between, so I switched to a startup where I stayed for about five years, which, where we grew from, I don't know, 100 users to 1,000 users, which was an amazing ride. And I could see all the stages of an org.
0: From mm, Yeah, you know, yeah. From that kind of entrepreneurial small org to growing to an enterprise
1: with thirty, at some point we had thirty developers and Salesforce developers on that org because yeah. the Salesforce team <laughs> swallowed the IT team basically. You know, at some you know what I mean?
0: Yeah, I, 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 yeah, I, I, yeah. I've been there. <laughs> it's, it's always like you know, Salesforce comes into these companies sometimes almost without any IT input. I've been in so many meetings with with you know. IT people going, we didn't know the business was using this and they're freaking out because they're storing loads of data and stuff in it and they never realized. Um, and then slowly it becomes adopted and you start building more and more business processes and it becomes more and more integral to the business. Um, but yeah, it's quite exciting to see and see things grow, especially from, yeah, from that zero to yeah. a thousand users
1: and I also learned my lesson there about uh, refactoring, premature optimization as well, data modeling. Yeah. Um Did you have any kind of data
0: scaling issues though? Because we had had
1: every issue, every every issue (laughs) (laughs) under the sun, every, (laughs) I think we hit at some point, every single um, limit you can hit, not because Salesforce is bad with limits. So maybe a disclaimer here, I think almost no limits unless you're super scaly enterprise is actually a bad limit for reasonable Uh, work size. It's usually just bad architecture in our case.
0: I think, and also it makes you, I always think the the limits actually make you a better developer if you're, you know, developing on the side. And, um, you know why would you call the database multiple times in a for loop? It makes no it, sense, it, you know. It, what
1: it, transaction do you have where you really need more than exactly. 200 DML statements? Like, know, exactly. show me your transaction <laughs> or, or you, 100 DML statements. Yeah, yeah.
0: You, know, you got something wrong if you're going that
1: way. Yeah. Yeah. Synchronously, we talk about it. 100 DML statements synchronously in one transaction. What? Yeah, can't exactly. you yeah, yeah. That?
0: i, I that? I think the only project I had where it was incredibly tricky is because was they had the bus- this business rule that all invoices had to be created on a specific day of the month. And... You could do- batching? Yeah, but there was batching and stuff like that. But the problem was there's so much complex calculations to work out the invoicing. It was just... It, even with batching, it was taking a while. But it was... We did... You know, it was achievable in the end. It was just more of a complex architectural problem to solve, really. Um, is that everything going to be really super lean? Um, but, yeah, no, it, it, I think it's, yeah. There's a few
1: weird limitations here and there you hit. Like uh, the Connect API has some very weird 200, um, two, you can only call it 200 times per user per hour as far as I know. You know. Yeah, so it's I very weird. It's one.
0: actually talking about limits is quite interesting because like last year, was the first time where they introduced a limit that went across all orgs, not just your single org. And that was which like are, for me, uh, that the functions.
1: Is, uh, yeah, functions. Which yeah, I, I, I just.
0: Yeah. Are, you, I'm are like, we
1: actually sure that it's across orgs? Because I asked yeah. them on Twitter and I got different answers. It's across orgs? No, no,
0: definitely, yeah, because uh, Andrew Forsett actually posted saying, and he is the uh, the master of functions at Salesforce. Yeah, it is across all orgs, which I kind of... Yeah, it's a divergence from, you know, what you think a limit is or, you know, that it is everything is constrained in that single org, sandbox or whatever. But then I can also see that actually... If you're going that serverless route, you know there's other controls you can put in per org you know to limit it potentially but also that it's a kind of almost limitless thing or not limit you know to a point but it's using AWS it's using you know massive stacks behind it. so when they say it's a limit I I'm probably guaranteeing it's going to be a soft limit you know yeah. it's just gonna or you know, a, a money limit. Well, exactly. It's a money limit, yeah. yeah basically, yeah, yeah. The so, same as uh,
1: process uh, platform events. I find the 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 um, the, subscri- the limit on delivered events really low because I'm such a fan of the, of platform events. But yeah, so you know.
0: Yeah, um, I think I think, but also but it's quite yes, interesting. We like, when you, I remember talking to AWS and Lambda functions, and mm-hmm. Lambda functions actually cost more than kind of implementing your own version on EC two um so actually aws makes more money on lambda than they do on if you were doing it in a kind of an ec2 approach but why would you bother scale you know building that scale in um ec2 when you can just use lambda you know so but yeah i think when you get to that massive scale it starts become less of a well you might as well just use you know an ec2
1: formation sure. you know. okay. Time. Yeah, but unless that, I think um, I personally haven't worked in like a massive enterprise org gig. I'm actually not planning to. I find this, like, let's say 1,000 to 10,000 user orgs quite nice because I still can have all the flexibility and be hands on. So we, yeah. to, we have a. I think a more bi- governance bi- comes wi-
0: in, more controls, and it becomes harder to be flexible and agile, I suppose.
1: Um, we have a biweekly architect meeting in the morning, like just a couple of us, and we talked about like how do we see ourselves. And I personally see myself still as a technical product owner. Mm, okay. You know, I like to. Of course, I architect, but I also take care that the code quality is good, or write tickets. I have no issue writing tickets, or even getting you know doing first level support if a project goes live.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I I quite like that as well. I think I always want to keep my hand in, (laughs) I suppose. And if you go too far away to the almost enterprise architecture, business architecture, it kind of pulls you so far away that I kind of lose that kind of mile wide knowledge of
1: tech, I suppose, because you're so abstracted away from it all. Um, Salesforce is so easy. So um, at some point I started learning code. You know, more of, curios- more of curiosity, and I've so is found that when you were in Salesforce,
0: you didn't learn code outside
1: of Salesforce. It's all been within yeah, yeah, only okay. Salesforce. Of course, a little HTML and shape yeah, JavaScript, yeah, yeah, of course, m- yeah. but um, and I did it on myself. I never worked as a developer, and I was I came to a certain level. I think last year, and I released four apps on App Exchange, but I was stuck because my code was all spaghetti. Mm. So adding a feature was a nightmare. And since it, this apps was kind of my hobby and coding, I was stuck. I lost motivation.
0: And I think, yeah, and I think also it's, it's kind of like it's very easy to develop on the platform. It's very easy to do stuff. And I remember when I was doing PHP scripting, you know, it was very easy to write it bad <laughs> rather yeah. than going into you know, the other approach, you know. So, yeah, it's the same in Salesforce, I think, as well.
1: Yeah, exactly. Like you say, um, especially I think Trailhead does a bad job there. If you look mm. at the Trailhead modules, learning code, I went through all of them. You uh, Not all of them, but you know, the beginner ones yeah. to platform developer too. You learn it actually the wrong way. Mm. Is, yes, is it, it works. But yeah.
0: And I I, think I always find it because when I learned code at university, so I learned Java basically uh, at uni. And it's actually one of the first certified Java countries campuses in Europe where I kind of learned it from. So they basically Sun Microsystem just invested shed loads of money at the university. Um, But it was quite interesting because like, learning at a university context, it was almost like you don't really learn Java yet. It's all the how you, you know, variable namings, inheritance, commenting, and how the best practice of, you know, writing code before you actually really start learning how to code properly. Um, and whereas I think, yeah, with Trailhead, they kind of jump straight in to kind of go, right, and we're going to write a, create a class and, and do this. And, and um, you kind of miss that kind of best practice and how to actually properly structure your code.
1: Yeah, and then I lost, honestly, I lost motivation to code. as anything more complex than the simple stuff? Because it became just too painful. Let's say I had a simple, I had a front end, which needed another field from the database. It was always something annoying because I had, mm. I had, logic all over the place and everything broke all the time. You know what I mean? And everything became a chore. And we talked about it before then I um, discovered Matt Gary's. I knew there was better ways of coding, you know, (laughs) but I never (laughs) got over that hurdle. I even have the enterprise pattern. I uh, read the book um, on design patterns, but it was too abstract for me, Mm. too far away.
0: I think that, yeah, yeah, I've I've got that book actually. Yeah. And it was very much... uh, a copy of design patterns and just redone for Salesforce, I suppose. And it was still
1: that kind of very abstract level. Yeah, I can agree with that. And Matt Gary then showed me as the videos of him showed me a few very basic ideas. And a friend, I we talked about it, who is a old school Java developer who does code review on my Salesforce code, which is great because, you know, um, outside view. Yeah, absolutely. And ever since then i got uh, I'm super motivated again this is like this is maybe the one takeaway I can give people out there if you're not motivated to code, maybe it's because you don't know how to do it properly.
0: Mm.
1: yeah if you think coding is hard it's I found it super easy once I follow simple separation of concern, not complex simple one simple layered architecture, simple interfaces, simple abstracts I, this is I think all that I need, yeah. And, and I, I, use, the, yeah, and I think right it's, it's.
0: I think also it's how people get into code as well. I think a lot of people, from what I see, is they're either an admin or they're in Salesforce already, and they're looking at the existing code and they start off bug fixing rather than mm-hmm. starting from learning properly, I suppose. And so you almost get you're in Spaghetti Land already. And you get mm-hmm. totally demotivated almost immediately because it's spaghetti land and you don't really understand what on earth it's doing. And it's not your fault, really. It's more almost the fault of the person who'd written the code in the first place, um, you know, because it should just read by itself, you know.
1: Yeah, I see it even with people who come from university, master in coding, yeah. and once they start Salesforce coding, after half a year, they lost all their best practices and <laughs> adopted to the Salesforce world, you know what I mean? Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think
0: it comes back also, it kind of comes back a little bit on that, having that architectural principles code reviews and learning from each other to make sure you don't slip into that world like coming in you've got all this great knowledge on how to do it properly but it just gets eroded away and eroded away and pressures to get the job done quickly and all this kind of stuff and you don't realize you know 10 years later you've got an org that's just creaking and and very hard to make any changes in
1: yeah this is a good point a friend of mine has a So hit me up if you need that. He has a super specialized Salesforce developer team. It consists of um, a lead developer, three developers, and a QA. You can hire them, but you can only hire them as a team because he told me as soon as you split, he sends out one developer, let's say for half a year to a client, Um, (laughs) the developer becomes worse than he (laughs) was before. So he only sends them out as a team. Absolutely, keep the quality. brilliant.
0: Yeah, exactly. Brilliant. And I think that's a must. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I actually, I always, I think actually, there's a whole new paradigm of consulting and stuff coming in, um where yeah, you are getting these kind of crack teams that are really brilliant at solving this specific problem you know a crazy messy org or working with legacy code or a crack team for service cloud or, or whatever it is and you're hiring them as a team to do that piece of work and then support it going forwards or, or hand off you know to the business rather than these generic consultancies coming in and doing stuff and they're kind of learning it on the side trying to show that yes they know it really well but actually you know we all know yeah. they've only just learned it the week before.
1: Yeah, if if even. <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I think back in the day, I can I never forget there was Salesforce used to sell the five day quick start. So you buy Salesforce and you can be up and running in in like five days. But in reality, you know, you need to build your business processes in. You need to kind of customise it, and invariably, it takes more than five days to do that. And I think they've, you know, they've shunned, you know, they've gone away from that kind of thing. But it's still, at the end of the day, Salesforce wants to sell licenses. So, you know, and I had somebody trying to sell CPQ to um, a client of mine. Where I'm like, what? They? It's not even anywhere near the wheelhouse of what they do. It's completely, you know, inappropriate almost. But they're still trying to sell it. You know, um, didn't get anywhere, but. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> I think yeah, it is just the nature of the business, isn't it? And, and and again, it comes back to that knowing of that having that third party architectural view or experience to know if. It is right for the business or not and I think I get quite a lot of work just from people going you know what's the best architectural approach can you just review this and say if it's in line with what we should be doing or not you know should we go with cpq should we build our own should we buy another product and integrate you know what is the best approach uh, based oh, on their a, problems th-
1: this must be an interesting job to see all these different kinds of matches uh, of products products
0: yeah considered by customers yeah, and I think I, I, it's always a little bit – because I always find that you get some companies that buy Salesforce thinking it's something completely different, which is fine. And I've seen companies just not use Sales Cloud or Service Cloud really at all, and they've built an entire custom application within it to do a certain – solve a problem within the business, and it works brilliantly well. And then you get others that kind of buy Salesforce but then don't use it for what it's really good at doing. And their project kind of goes off a tangent when they're building Salesforce out. And you don't get the value of what you've bought. And this is why, kind of, one of the reasons why I bought, I kind of created that um, feature capability map, functional capability map of Salesforce. Because it's kind of like saying, well, this is all the stuff you've bought. You know, where is the best fit for your business? And also, I've got another diagram, which is kind of like the Salesforce value map. Which is kind of like this is where the value of Salesforce, how does it map to your people, your process, your tech internally, and also then what's the business value and drivers from each part of that stage through the kind of Salesforce value train um, to try and kind of get around
1: these challenges. I took your uh, capability map and then I thought about it. And one ex- one thing I found from my clients, from my smaller ones, is Salesforce automated email send outs. As soon as you install the better email flow, also the better email plugin for from unofficial Salesforce um, where you can send better emails from flows, Salesforce is actually, for smaller companies, a great marketing tool. And they don't need MailChimp or marketing cloud. Yeah, absolutely, I, yeah. You, know, you just especially use flow. flows. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> exactly. I, that's it. You need a better email plugin from yeah. an unofficial sales force. And then it, that's it. That people our customers are blown away with that.
0: Mm. Because yeah, they I,
1: suddenly save hundreds of euros on licenses per month from other tools. It's and also, all, I think, I think you, you get the benefit Salesforce.
0: of you got this entire platform under the hood. So if you do want to customize that flow in a little bit more, you know, call out to web service to check that something's happened or whatever, you can. Whereas a lot of the kind of, other tools out there, you know, you're know, you kind of constrained by what it, how it works and that's it. Um, yeah, you can't do I, these more kind of advanced functions.
1: Yeah, I don't say it's a replacement for marketing cloud. It's, it only works for smaller orgs, or oh, small it, yeah, transactional yeah. emails, but this is a welcome email. It's perfectly fine in Salesforce. Yeah, completely, yeah, completely agree. Why, or transactional emails. Yeah, uh, I, th- I like your idea of the capability map. I should think about a few more quick wins. I copy pasted the emojis for the tab labels. Have you seen that? Yes. This is amazing. This is so brilliant. Why did it take me 10 years to learn about that? I did that immediately for my clients without asking, you know.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I love it. I didn't even think because actually way back in classic world, yonks and yonks ago, you could actually put HTML in the field labels.
1: Yeah, I remember.
0: Yeah. And that was great because you kind of change the color, you know, put whatever you like in it. Uh, but obviously they kind of cracked down on that and it kind of all disappeared. Uh, but yeah, yeah, this is this yeah, adding emojis in. I think it's great. It gives that extra kind of
1: level of, you know, visibility of, you know, and design to the pages. So, yeah, and people even don't, also my users don't even notice. they thought it's just something sales for because it feels so natural to have these emojis yep. as a feature. Yeah, absolutely. And
0: I, I always, I, I sometimes, I know it's a bit naughty, but uh, when there's a major release, there's some things that I know would really benefit the use, you know, users, but a bit of resistance or whatever. And I just bundle it in as part of the major release, and so they think it's part of the major release when actually it's part of our internal release that we've kind of released on major release day. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's yeah, it's interesting. It's good though. Yeah. It,
1: it's oftentimes the small things. And um, maybe the, um, we talked about coding. So what I also, it's because I talk about it because it really blew me away, is um, modularize my code. So we talked about the spaghetti. So I try, it yeah. sounds like everybody talks about it, but now I finally understood what it actually means. Instead of writing the front end and the back end and everything in one big go, I just write one middle small little piece. So right now we talked about it. I write a small method, which gets me the contracted price and that's mm-hmm. it. And unless this method is done completely end to end, I don't touch the others mm. okay. because this way, yeah. you know, um, I get actually something done while before I would write the method a little bit then I would start with the UI, then I would write a few test classes, then I would go over there, then I get frustrated and then, and nothing is done ever. <laughs>
0: So, so, you know, you le- they- so you did mention that you, got, you learned a lot of this from Mike. <clears throat> I met Matt Gary. Oh, sorry, Matt Gary. Sorry, sorry not Mike. Yeah. Um, which is coding with the force all on these YouTube videos. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I just watched a few of them um, because uh, so just the one on uh, the solid principles. And I watched them several times. I watched them once and then I watched them and coded along. Oh, okay. Cool. And then I made, um, I think the sec- this is what I learned now when I, do co- when I watch coding videos, I have to watch them two times.
0: Mm. Actually, yeah, no, it's like, quite interesting. <clears throat> I think, yeah, actually a lot of my students kind of say that they've watched my videos like two or three times to kind of make sure it all goes in. But I think it, it, it's the same. It's kind of like the, the more times you watch, the more, it's more chance of it going in, I suppose. Rather than, yeah. I always find like... <clears throat> I kind of get a bit of a a scattergun kind of, oh, bit of trailhead here, bit of YouTube video here, over there, but it never really all brings it together. But actually just focusing on one person or one person that's very good and following through all their videos and just focusing on that, it it, solidifies it more because you're kind of thinking in the way that they're thinking rather than trying to cobble together a lot of different approaches that may not all work together. If that makes yeah, any this, sense at all. Yeah, this
1: makes a lot of sense. Maybe combined with something, a, a friend of mine, he's a team lead, and he told me he does one thing. He improves on one topic per week. Mm. Yeah. So the same as with, uh, with the, what I did with the maths videos. I watched all the videos first, but then I took one solid principle per week and made sure I really use that principle all the time with everything I'm doing. Mm, and yeah. only when this principle really became second nature, a habit, a habit, I moved on to the second principle instead of mm. trying to get them all in at once. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. Because like you say, it's otherwise I get lost. Yeah. And, and just I overwhelmed by the amount of information <laughs> out there. <laughs> yeah. And we talked about it a little bit beforehand. Um, I found coding now super actually boring most of the times because I follow the same concept every time I, <laughs> I, def- I define <laughs> yeah it becomes really routine. Yeah. it becomes I, I, I can code now while I watch a movie with my partner because it's um, <laughs> I sketch out the UI like super quickly. Um, I define the interfaces, I define the test class, I write the adapter class. I run the test until the adapter is no lie anymore <laughs> also, unless uh, and, you know, um, then once this is all done, I commit the code, I'm done. Next I go to the UI, I, I do the UI completely end to end oftentimes without actually connecting to the adapter mm, okay it, yeah, you know, yeah because yeah it makes sense yeah, yeah you know first of all it's faster mm. i know what the object i have we talked about it. And, it's never also, passed- it
0: and having that separation you also kind of have a rapid prototyping of a ui just to see if the flow and everything works before you start you know it gives that nice separation anyway
1: Exactly, and then I try to. At some point, I, I bring them together, and I notice, oh, my UI needs one more field. But this is what we talked before. I don't pass as objects anymore directly to the UI. I always have a, is how's is it called, um, an, a wrapper class in between. Hmm. That there's another a model. So, so yeah, maybe I I share my screen. I I can watch you walk you maybe through. So what I have here, it's, it looks really complex. But my UI needs. I call it a complex product. A complex product consists of product name. Product options price book entry unit price, a contracted price, a discount um, it even sometimes has quote line items um, and a lot of other information on it on that uh, max quantity min quantity you see I work on an, a CPq product so yeah. in the <laughs> on, a, on my app, ECCPQ. What in the olden days, what I would do if I pass that directly to the UI, if my underlying database structure, if anything changes, I always have to adopt the adapter, the wrapper, as a, I have to adapt it, and the UI, while now everything is nicely separated. So at one point, I changed the underlying, uh, no, I changed the UI massively, but I didn't have to change anything in the underlying um, SQL queries, I just have to, had to change the adapter a little bit. And Now, at some point, I wanted to uh, my product options also have product option categories. Now, I just added it. Oh, I I can remove that. I implemented that and I just added that to my base objects and and I didn't have to change anything. Nothing broke. Yeah, I think one of the the example,
0: I think one of the examples you gave was when you wanted to get the product information with an opportunity or product rather than using that S object to pull all that through you actually wanted to get the product from a contract or something else. You didn't have to completely redo your code. It was literally just repoint based on that business logic.
1: Exactly, my UI, uh, the, the example was um, the price book and also uh, the, yeah. the, the unit price is either a contracted price. Uh, I mean, CPQ people know all that, a contracted price or a price book entry price or a bundle price. So it's the UI always just displays the price The UI doesn't even know where the price comes from, but the wrapper itself takes care of that. Mm -hmm. The wrapper has a built-in method which says um, price, and then I have the three fields, and the method says uh, give give me the correct price for the logic. Yeah, exactly. And this is super, super nice. So if I say want to add another functionality, which says sometimes the price comes from a third-party system, the UI wouldn't even know about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which is the way it should be. (laughs) And everybody always told me and I never knew how to get about it. And then I took in the time. It is the takeaway I have for myself. I force myself now every Monday morning, I spend one hour of becoming a better coder. Mm. One topic every Monday morning instead of going right at it. This one hour. Um, Last week, it was just how to use Visual Studio Code properly. (laughs) It it sounds really weird, but my productivity increased massively by this one hour investment
0: learning the odd little extension that you could help improve yourself or, or whatever. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. So would you say yeah. that you were a, a <clears throat> you get a kick out of coding and that is something you want to do more of or no, how deep I do you want to go? To,
1: yeah. So, um, I talked to a very senior architect. There's many different architects in the world, but about my personal history and she told me it's, I should be a good coder. I shouldn't work as a coder, mm. but as an arch because we still build software. Yes, exactly, it's yeah. low code th- in theory, but the architecture, the software coding principles still apply. And um, this actually got me thinking. So, coming back to the apps I'm developing, I, com- I could outsource all of the coding and it would be actually way cheaper yeah. compared to the time <laughs> I invested. You know, Absolutely. I mean. uh, but yeah, I the
0: opportunity to- cost you're losing.
1: Yeah. <laughs> So I want to be good at it the same way I want to be good at UX because I think I build software. It is important. It's like, I always
0: think that it's a very creative thing, coding and development, because you are building these user interfaces and also being creative in the way you architect the code as well. is very. It's a very creative thing. And those people that don't see it as a creative endeavor – I don't know. It just you I think I find that more people or more coders have trouble getting adoption, I suppose, because it doesn't just it doesn't work as well as they should. The user interfaces don't work. So understand even having a good idea of user interface design, um, and then that kind of follows into your coding world and being able to kind of design and kind of architect your code in a way that's manageable and you don't need to comment because it just speaks for itself. Um, It's quite a creative thing as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and I think coding, I don't know, but you've made me a better flow architect, for example, flow builder. Yeah. Because flows is code... Let's be honest, it's code, it just (laughs) pretends to not be code, but it does the same thing. Get data, iterate over the data, manipulate data, write data to the database, that's it.
0: Yeah, I always, always, when people come to me and go, I want to be a coder, I'm like, and they're working in Salesforce, I'm like, do you know Flow really well? And it's like, no. I'm like, do Flow first? Because... It is code essentially under the hood, but it's a it's more accessible to build and design a flow to a point. But you're learning that coding kind of uh, concepts of loops and not hitting limits and things like
1: that, which you can then bring in to coding. Um, I never thought about it this way. And you also learn the platform better, I would say. I would yeah, say, exactly. Yeah. The value of invocable methods. I'm the biggest fan of invocable methods. Ever. Absolutely,
0: everything Abs-
1: should be. Yeah, everything. Yeah. <laughs> my, my apps are all a- now designed with flow first. So the first thing I developed, <laughs> is the, uh, um, so it, uh, when I do UIs, it has to work in a flow.
0: Yeah, and, uh, the um, UI I basically, one of my coding principles is not to use triggers. And
1: no, I, I have zero triggers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And no, it, no, it, I have one more, of those, and then um, some.
0: Some uh, circumstances so you do you need triggers.
1: Yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. But some circumstances just, you, you know. do need
0: triggers. But nine times out of 10, you don't need a trigger. And also, for me, not putting it in trig- as a trigger is you're separating your code from the business execution. So it's almost like the declarative admin and business logic of when this should be executed is now being pushed into the declarative world. And then your code it gets executed from that rather than being embedded in a trigger.
1: Uh, We always talk about that. The most important part of every trigger framework is um, control over the flow of execution. Mm. This is what a flow does. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The code itself is still Apex code. I completely understand that more often than not, we need Apex code, you know, to do, I don't know, get a complex object from the database. But again, mm. now we come back, I would not pass back an S object. I would always pass back an Apex defined the variable.
0: Do people make architectural decisions? And is an admin an architect? And there was one uh, thing you yeah. kind of said. Yeah. And we kind of had the discussion as well. Um, you know, is an admin an architect or do they do architectural principles? Yeah, if you're creating objects or data model, changing the data model, creating a data model, that is an architectural decision because it's hard to change after the fact. Yeah, and it's
1: basically every admin is an architect because of that. Every every admin an admin controls um, security, sharing. So if you go through the CTA um, CTA um, handbook, what you have to study, eight out of the ten things, is, nine out of the ten things is admin stuff data migration, reports, yep. roles, sharing, security, business requirements, org strategy. Yeah, exactly. How <laughs> many admins make org strategy decisions? Yeah, completely.
0: And I think this is where the whole People think that it's this kind of technical utopian thing that is really hard to get and and it's so not me at all. But actually, you're making these decisions if you're an admin all the time. And I think it's especially like even your journey where you kind of started off with that small, tiny org all the way up to that thousand, you know, user user org those decisions that were made way
1: back at the beginning. I I, I don't know who came up with that, but we reused the quote objects for events. Okay. (laughs) There was a rationale behind it. I know the rationale. Um, it, It haunted us
0: forever. (laughs) And it is. It's those decisions which have kind of like, at the time, they seem sensible based on the available information you have and knowledge. But actually, yeah, you've kind of embedded this in now. And it is the crux of the org. And you really want to get out of it. But now you can't. But then going back to your coding, having that separation so you're not passing everything. If you do want to change the data model underneath, it becomes easier. It's not easy, but it is easier to make those it's, kind of change, yeah. those changes, you know. It
1: and I would maybe even say come back with um, flows. The same as with flows. I mean, we all use flows now. And you can use to when you get data, you can actually either say Salesforce, please get the data in an S object, or get the data in a variable I define. Yeah. If we can now vent a little bit, currencies, um, my the bane of my existence, time zones and currencies. <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> I think also mine is precision um just for uh rounding issues and things like that that is my bane
1: usually (laughs) but then you then you never have worked with time zones
0: i i remember not i haven't recently because i've kind of avoided it mostly but I think I remember there's a god way back I had all kinds of fun with data migrations and time zones. Oh god. That the, the was, yeah that was the
1: Yeah. The startup I was working in was heavily based on appointments. This was basically their bis- core business process of mm-hmm. uh, getting customers to go to appointments. And we have been in 10 different countries. Um, and so you had like, okay, if it's the 3rd of November and it's 10 o'clock in Denver, but the appointment is in December, after the time, uh, after the time zone change, what should we send the email out when? How does it go? <laughs> Correct, but the customer lives not in Denver but in the neighboring state, which has a different time zone. Yeah, it becomes a nightmare. It, I don't know why everybody didn't adopt swatch time, it <laughs> would have been a lot easier. <laughs> yeah, how do you how often do you see multi currency? Actually, I was curious. Is I'm I, doing
0: yeah, quite a lot. Like the current client, client I'm with, they've got, it's not massive, you know, it's just USD, euros, pound, because it's pound, you know, because I'm in the UK. Ah, you
1: always have euros. You at- always have euros usually. Yeah. Because, because I'm doing currently doing this interview with a lot of people on multi-currency because I wanted to avoid it. And Americans more often than not don't have multi-currency. Yeah. Why would they? <laughs> yeah. And as Europeans, we as Germans, we always, I have also Swiss francs always ah, true yeah. yeah yeah makes sense I think because we do a lot
0: I think usually from, from my experience because there's so much you know Ireland and UK there's a lot of crossover ah. of businesses so really even if it's not a on the continent euros you know the business is still doing something with Ireland in some way ah. so you kind of end up using euros just for that but i think that my my favorite project in currencies was a company that had a really long lead time for their opportunities and so they'd source their their raw materials i suppose products in many different currencies and then they would they on the opportunity it would basically work on a day by day Based on the currency exchange rate changes, if that opportunity was still profitable or not. Oh God! And so, because because the deal length is you you know their typical you know opportunity length would be a year from start to end, and the currency fluctuations could be quite a bit. So they'd need to have visibility to understand if the currency had changed wildly and or enough to make it unprofitable. So they'd have to requote the customer. Um, but it was quite interesting because then if it went in their favor, they obviously were making more money on the deal um, than, you know, than And before, they wouldn't
1: quote but... if the currency switched. It Absolutely. Was right <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. It was quite yeah, about interesting. About the lead times, um, I didn't know that before because I was never into B2B sales. Also, I was mm. doing the Salesforce side. But even for my small apps, the lead time or the currency cycle is at least six months up to 12 months.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's quite interesting how how long some sales so cycles go, um, and also I think that's quite interesting when you start getting into the analytics and things like that. Where if it is that B two C, it's almost like I learned on one client. It was we worked out that from somebody filling out a form on the website to it becoming a lead and converting to an opt, and that first response they had to respond within fifteen minutes, otherwise. The, stat, the the sales just dropped off quite a lot because the customer was then going to another website or doing more research and finding a competitor, basically. Um, but with B2B, you know, it's, sometimes there's a longer tail. And also, I think you get the, the I'm doing a, a piece of work, or we did a piece of work last year with a customer which was um, based on that lead coming in, instantly identifying the size of the company, the, the segment that that company fits in so that you can understand what that typical pain points for that size or type of company is. So then the salesperson immediately has all this information to start asking questions about the company and also knows, knows we can determine how we interact with that customer. In a different way. So, if it's an entrepreneurial type, you know, type company, they're usually time poor. Therefore, maybe you're doing a lot more kind of online submissions or you know, communication. Whereas, you know, a bigger company, they've got more time potentially, and it's more in-person and on the phone kind of conversations. So, but yeah,
1: this makes a lot of sense. And maybe to the b two C, I think I I know what you mean. We also did many analysis and different, uh, different startups have worked on. There is. Something like you sell in the first 30 minutes if you're lucky. Or the second one is I found one startup which made a lot of money. They at some point realized that as long as you send them constant helpful newsletter. Yeah, it's building up that. At some point they buy, sometimes three years later, but don't give up on them.
0: No, and I think think this is also, I find a problem not a problem, but with, I get loads, I don't know about you, but I get loads of emails from Salesforce partners going, we do development, we do Salesforce consultancy, come use us because we're cheap or free or whatever it is. Um, And that, um, you kind of ignore them. But those ones that like we specialize in creating portals on Salesforce that is specific and niche, and we're going to regularly send you information on things we've learned, I'm, it's stuck in my mind and it's like, oh, okay, yeah, I need a custom pull. Oh, okay, maybe I'll check these guys out because, you know, it's kept in my mind. And it's, I think those are the companies they are going to benefit in the future, you know.
1: Yeah, I, we always pretend to not read newsletters, but I send out newsletters from my apps um, and I got almost 50% open rate and about 10% click rate on almost all of my newsletters. So newsletters mm. actually work as long as you yeah, say, well, like you say. It's helpful information. It's not just marketing spam yeah, by me.
0: It's got to be yeah, yeah, targeted information. And actually, I've got a careers. I don't, did you? I don't know if have you, have you saw. I don't know if you. I think you saw you. You were on the sign up um, a career weekly video that I send out. Um, which um, yeah, it's kind of how to you know things that I've learned over my Salesforce career that I found useful, I suppose, and learning what to go into or what not based on my what I'm kind of what my strengths are or weaknesses are and how my you know weaknesses could pull me down and I've kind of of worked around that as well as all those kind of different roles and and how roles change over time like you know an admin can be many different things, in a, from a startup entrepreneurial company all the way to a yeah a thousand user company, you can still yeah. be an admin, but it's a different, very
1: different role. And um, I would say even in a startup admin, you're actually an architect, while in a yeah. 1,000 user uh, admin, you're just adopting page layouts all day long. So I personally would <laughs> rot. Yeah, Absolutely, if completely. You're, you are everything, you know, as those
0: small companies, you're an architect, you're, you know. Project you manager. You know the business, a project manager, yeah. And I always find like when I went I um, always find when you're um, working at a consultancy as a consultant as well you know a consultant well you're a business analyst you're a project manager you're implementing salesforce you're you know you're doing everything almost in some consultancies
1: rather than having you know separate roles to do those things but yeah, yeah definitely I personally find currently as an architect I like to also do the business analyst part yeah yeah I
0: And this, I think, comes back to one of my kind of those pet peeves of that kind of lift and shift mentality of using Salesforce. And you kind of, especially when you get into bigger companies, you have business analysts that are just focused on doing the business analysis but don't know Salesforce. And so they're kind of mapping what the business process is, but not marrying up that with the benefits of the platform. Mm -hmm. so there's a bit of a you know there's a little bit of a gap or and and when it comes to actually then implementing some things that are actually hard to do on the platform you're trying to shoehorn in based on this is the process that they want when in fact you could have automated it in a different way that was a lot quicker to implement in Salesforce and give a lot more business (sighs) benefit back to the business because they just don't know that actually you can automate this very quickly
1: yeah, or if if the architect would have been part of the initial. The, hey, no, business analysts are important. Don't take me wrong here. Absolutely, it's an important yeah, skill. Uh, But if an understanding architect understanding all
0: those exceptions to the rules of business is just a, a, yeah, it's a craft in itself. It's yeah. great knowing the usual business process, but all those exceptions are the ones that kill you. And being a good business uh, analyst to understand how you pull all that information out, yeah, is definitely nevertheless,
1: I like to have one or two end users at quick on QuickTile during my project
0: mm.
1: instead of yes i I'm going to the business analyst is great, but sometimes I just go to an end user directly and ask, hey, how many invoices do you actually create per day? It yeah. takes three minutes and I can immediately architect
0: instead yeah, of going to the business analyst yeah and I think it's, it's it's kind of correct, and that's also actually now going into the kind of the c o e creating a COE and having champions in the business that are kind of really passionate for Salesforce, but working as a user embedded in the business yeah, that you I, can use to kind of get that, that info.
1: I'm actually opposed to these champions. I have been working with these oh, kind really? of champions for 10 years and I learned my lesson not to talk to them ever. why seriously yes um, I have a whole presentation on that but uh, um, uh, this was one of my first Dreamforce uh, uh, this was my only and first Dreamforce presentation how to (laughs) (laughs) manage Salesforce projects which I do is um, a few couple of ground rules the first one is no managers in the room yeah. If they analyze three. business process because they don't know anything about the business process, let's be honest, they just but they pretend to. So they give you bullshit information on, oh, we but have also I think f- they they influence the users in the room because the users just then go on the best case because that's what they've been told to do. But actually, they don't do that at all. Exactly. Like. like yeah. So and the second is the champions. Also, I have been building in the startup. We have been building the startup org for three or five champions for five years. They knew everything in button. At some point, we had two rows of buttons. Uh, you know, in classic, you could have rows of buttons, two or three rows of buttons on the quote object because the champions wanted to have this feature, this feature, this feature. These champions have been with the company for five years. New sales was inside out. But at some point, we realized something. They don't represent our users at all. Our average user, it was an outbound call center or is still. Um, on our average user was there for three months because the company grew so fast. Yeah, I've been in a, yeah. It's so a what, when the thing. champions told me, I need this button to automatically clone an, a quote, uh, but only on a Tuesday, it was really helpful for this champion. I completely understand it, but not helpful for the 99% of the users. Yeah, and I think,
0: yeah, it, it, I remember working in an outbound course. Actually, it actually wasn't with Salesforce. It was a completely different CRM. And yeah, high turnover of staff. Interface has to be super slick. You need to intuitive immediately. It's totally different. And also, it was, it, the, the CRM I worked on was a process-driven CRM. They didn't actually see Salesforce because it was Salesforce at the time was very record-driven, very, it was actually, it's hard to learn. You know, you have to have training on Salesforce to learn, you know, learn it before you can use it. So for outbound call centers with a high turnover staff, you don't want to be spend half their time You know training up how to use the platform only for them to disappear in six months time
1: so what Um, i'd like interesting yeah so then the champions were the gurus of the platform but actually yeah yeah, it makes a lot of sense so what i like to have hey i still listen to the champions some you know they still have good ideas don't take me but they don't represent the user um so what i like to have is my kevin and melissa um, two average, not the rockstar comp- salespeople, because again, they don't represent the average user. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so I call them Kevin and Melissa because this was the first two I had of them. Just two of them are enough. Slightly lazy, completely average, or even below average. Yeah. Because if I ask Kevin, hey, do you ever click that button? And Kevin tells me, what button do you mean? Then I know yeah. the button is useless, obviously. Yeah.
0: So, Do you use the analytics of Salesforce to see w- what no, users are doing?
1: I have my own. They are completely useless, the Salesforce one. The, the Shield analytics? No, not the Shield. I have I built my own app for that. Oh, okay. So because I've used the a, shield, shield analytics for
0: the page views and stuff like that to kind of understand, it can only go so not, far though.
1: It's not granular enough. I have a, um, an app no, no, called yeah. um, a feature adoption tracking where you just add a little a lightning component to every page to, or, every, or every button or even every flow yeah. or every process builder. And it tracks granularly and on a user basis, on a per week basis. So if I have a new feature and I see either nobody's using it but five users, I would call up these five users. hey why are you using it? What is your yeah. rationale? And I, it goes back to the actually the good old days of classic because
0: I know and you, I, I, when they got rid of the JavaScript in the, the sidebar of classic, it was like, oh, because everybody would put Google Analytics tracking in there and then X. it would just push everything to Google Analytics and you could see how people were using Salesforce and it was great. Um, Was now yeah component on every page, but even then you can't put components on every page. So you know,
1: and I would even go as far as put it onto every tab in a page to see. You know, I have yeah. five tabs, and how often is the third tab actually clo- um, watched, viewed? If yeah, you know,
0: completely. Yeah, and I think it goes back to that whole you know, agile development and analy- analysis of actually are the users using this? Was it? And that is, you know, you're measuring. How, how things are being adopted all the time um, so that you're not just churning out stuff that nobody ever uses. But you think you're being really successful because we pushed all these features out, but actually it's not benefiting the business and nobody's using it anyway. And actually, most of the users just want the fields reorganized on this page layout to make it more efficient for them so they don't have to constantly scroll down or click four different tabs. And actually, that for them is way more beneficial than what you've just developed. <laughs>
1: Yeah, at some point we developed an amazing. It was a, a page. It was I'm so proud. It was one of my first big integration projects where we got emails from all different email tools and displayed them on one page, really nicely structured to show the salespeople exactly what emails the peop the customer got at one point at time and if they opened mm. the email. And the idea was behind, you know, we could react. Hey, you saw that email from last week and about blah blah blah. Yeah, yeah. we put in the tracking not even 1% of adoption. I pushed, put in a lot of time trying to convince people and they told me, I'm a sales guy. I call them up and ask them if they want to buy. I don't care about these fucking emails. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, it's just it's, measuring, you know. It, it, yeah, it, and exactly. then we cleaned up the page layouts and suddenly we have been the heroes of the company.
0: Yeah, exactly, yeah. Those little features, I think I remember the, um, I put some uh, little icons. Literally, again, back to formula fields are awesome. Um, literally just a handful of little icons in one formula field to represent the state of the customer in certain different ways. You know, have they, you know, missed a payment? Have they, you know, are they linked in some way to somebody who's deceased or, you know, you know, is there a special, you know, be careful with this customer because of X, Y, and Z. And they love it because literally on list views, in reports, in whatever, all they
1: need to do is pull in this status field and they instantly get a picture of that customer is not is it even a salesforce org if you don't have that formula field nah. i think it is a must have. it's one of the <laughs> yeah. when i do when i set up when i do a demo i always like you say the formula field um, a friend of mine even puts in a unicorn icon or a gif if possible oh right yeah i do, I, did, I do remember i
0: did a it's actually a Dreamforce talk I did years ago. And it was again a formula field, but it was a massive image <laughs> that was basically a data quality in classic. And uh the formula field kind of rudimentarily worked out if the quality of the record was good or not. And if it was bad really bad, it would just put up a skull and crossbones and like your record is awful kind of thing.
1: <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, it is it's great. And maybe to wrap it up, there I think we are over time. If I would s- tell one thing to Salesforce admins or org owners today, is get an in-house Salesforce team. I mean, I'm the one; I'm the outside, the freelance contractor who makes money of you not having that team. <laughs> yeah. With you know, but please get a team. Get two or three dedicated, at least admins who who like your org, who own your org, because yeah. honestly, I, th- I, I think don't, the value I care is about also. Your...
0: Yeah, the value is knowing the business. Yeah. If you getting anybody from external won't know your business, and even if they do try and learn it, there's still going to be a bit of a gap. And, yeah, having your own internal team is just so valuable for that. Although, I yet yeah, where that is valuable, it, I think it depends on the size of your company. If you're that int- entrepreneurial company, that startup, you can't build a big internal team or a small, you know, you haven't got the money to do it. You can still have a single admin that is permanent and then leverage somebody external just to verify that you're you know you're doing things in the right way, but then build your team and then, as you grow, start you know replacing those with kind of roles internally.
1: yeah, we have been at, at the company I was we have been only internals, and looking back, it's not the best thing in the world because you like you say you lose a little bit the outside view, and at some point we became very similar within the team so we would not challenge each other anymore because you know yeah you agree you
0: you kind of get locked into that way of thinking and that tool set and those things that you use without actually seeing the bigger picture Um, Mm and you know where you could use something else that but then it's you know it's a 10 second thing almost it's like you know this is what we're doing review it oh actually have you thought of this 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 and this which is incredibly valuable come back and go oh yeah and challenge those ideas and the ways of working Um, which could then you know change the way i also do do
1: reviews architecture reviews like you sometimes um, and i do it slightly Mm. different um i don't talk to the business first or the admin nobody i ask for a login and i log into the sandbox or the org itself as a user as an end user and i try to figure out the org myself because if i can't figure it out this is already the first sign
0: Okay, so that's it. Time's finished for this podcast. I hope you've liked it. And thank you so much, Johan, for being on the podcast. It's been great. We've talked about so much. But yeah, thanks. I hope you enjoyed your time.
1: Thanks a lot for having me. I was I'm um, listening to your podcast since a long time, and I never actually th- th- thought that I could ever be on it. Thanks for the nice chat, and um, <laughs> to all the people out there who wants to have a chat with me, recorded or not, I'm always up for it. Um, I like I'm a salesforce nerd at the end. Yeah, are we all? for you. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Thank you. See you. Bye.